young cowboy named Billy Joe grew restless on the farm. A boy filled with wanderlust who really meant no harm. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. This is Our American Stories. It's been called the peacemaker, the equalizer, the gun that won the West, Colt. The name is legendary. The gun, an historic American icon. The Colt revolver helped tame the frontiers, win wars, and spark a revolution in American manufacturing. There's an old West adage that goes something like this. Quote, God created man, Abe Lincoln freed them, but Sam Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt became America's first industrial tycoon, and his faithful wife, Elizabeth, proved herself to be no less extraordinary, making Sam Colt's legend bigger than ever and his empire her own. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, quote, Samuel Colt's life was the American story written in capital letters. Let's take a listen to that story. Samuel Colt is born July 19, 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut. His first five years of life are spent in privilege because of his father's business success. But from the age of six to 14, Samuel Colt loses his mother and sister to tuberculosis, and then loses a brother and another sister to suicide. At 11, he's indentured to a farmer. Colt begins reading from the Compendium of Knowledge, a scientific encyclopedia containing biographies of famous inventors. He gains knowledge of practical chemistry and becomes obsessed over fireworks and underwater explosives. Then, after one of his fireworks experiments sets his school ablaze, he's expelled. Here's William Hosley, author of Colt, The Making of an American Legend. Sam Colt came from a kind of difficult background. His mother died when he was seven. He didn't take to his formal studies, but he liked taking things apart and putting them back together again. He also liked explosives. He was kind of a prankster, and it got him in a lot of trouble. After his expulsion, Colt's father enlists his troublesome 16-year-old boy as a seaman on a ship. You watch your back, but you be respectful. You understand me? That will be sailing halfway around the world to Calcutta, India. Well, here he is. Nice strong worker, just like I told you. His father hopes that the journey will teach his son responsibility and that he will learn a trade as a seaman. But instead, the trip fills Samuel Colt with another idea. Colt is fascinated by guns and believes there's a way to make them better. It's the early 19th century. Battles are fought with sabers and single-shot muskets. Here's Ashley Lubinsky, curator at the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming, explaining the limited and cumbersome nature of guns at the time. 
you had to load it from the top of the gun, and you took a whole cartridge, which was powder, the projectile, and paper, and you would end up putting it down the barrel with a rod. So loading single shotguns weren't horribly efficient. It would take you about a minute or so to load three shots if you were really good. Colt has a revolutionary idea inspired by the giant steering wheel on his ship. He sees that the mechanisms that are used to uh, steer and control these ships had ratchets. And when they rotated the wheel, that it would cock and that these ratchets would hold it in place. Like the ship's wheel with axles, spokes, a barrel and handles, Colt notices that regardless of which way the ship's wheel spins, each spoke always came in direct line with a clutch that could be set to hold it. Colt envisions a firearm with a cylinder that can turn after each shot and lock, and then be fired multiple times. While on board the ship, Colt carves a wooden prototype of a revolving cylinder mechanism out of scrap wood. This is the beginning of the revolver. When Colt returns to America, he's a young man determined to turn his vision into a reality. Colt is a complex man who learns self-promotion. At an early age, the young entrepreneur developed a hustler's streak. From 1832 to 1836, Colt travels throughout America as Dr. Colt, spelled C-O-U-L-T, as the playbills read giving demonstrations of the newly discovered nitrous oxide, or laughing gas. In Out Where the West Begins, Phil Anschutz adds some color. Quote, Clad in a fashionable coat and top hat, and surrounded by smoking beakers, wax demons, mummies, and exploding fireworks, Colt persuaded spectators to sniff a bag coated with nitrous oxide. Sam guaranteed his audience a good half-hour's laugh at the resulting spectacle. Colt's mix of salesmanship with showmanship is on par with the likes of P.T. Barnum. While touring the country, Colt goes looking for investors interested in his revolver. Go on. Take a shot. How about another? And your revolver works the same way. It always keeps you loaded. This is going to revolutionize the world. He is the consummate salesman. When Sam Colt would come to you and ask for money, he's so over the top and he's such a unique personality, it's going to completely win over whoever he's asking. With the help of wealthy New Jersey relatives and friends, Colt raises $230,000, the equivalent of over $6 million today, and begins manufacturing his revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? And when we come back, more on the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the remarkable story of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? There were bugs at first. You don't want any chance that if you pull the trigger on a revolver, more than one bullet's gonna go off at the same time, or even blow up the cylinder. Colt improves his design, and in 1836 is awarded a patent to a 28 caliber, five-shot repeating firearm with a revolving cylinder. It's called the Colt Patterson, and it's like nothing the firearms industry has ever seen. Colt is 23 years old. But Colt's new revolver is proving a tough sell. Lawmen and military are not willing to take a chance on such a new and untested design. In 1842, after six years and a production run of 5,000 pistols and rifles, Colt declares bankruptcy and liquidates his assets. But 2,000 miles southwest in the new state of Texas, the Colt revolver is about to be put to the test. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Sam Colt's first large sale of his revolver went not to the U.S. Army, which rejected the gun outright, but to the Texas Navy. But plagued by lack of funding and political battles, the Texas Navy nearly ceased to exist by 1844, and its Colt's revolvers then went to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' first use of the revolvers came in the Battle of Walker's Creek in June 1844. Jack Hayes and 15 of his Rangers were out scouting for Comanche Raiders when the Comanche discovered them. The numbers were to the Comanche liking. Chief Yellow Wolf led more than 70 Comanche warriors. What Yellow Wolf and the other Comanche didn't count on was the Colt revolver. And every ranger was armed with two Colts. They were used to hearing the one shot go off, and then they all scramble to load, and then the next shot goes off. But imagine then hearing bang, bang, bang. Would have been incredibly powerful and something to be incredibly intimidated by. After several failed attempts at charging and overwhelming the outnumbered rangers, the Comanche broke and fled, dropping shields, lances, and bows. A Comanche chief said he would never fight the rangers again because they had a shot for every finger on their hands. On the ridge! Rifles! Then in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out after the constant border battles between Captain Samuel Walker and his Texas Rangers in the country of Mexico. 
for Walker and his men, the time it takes to reload a gun is often the difference between life and death. For every shot the Mexicans fire with their standard rifles, Walker's men can fire five. It's the beginning of a new era in warfare. Sam Walker began experimenting with how to use this. It's like, what do they got? What is this secret weapon? This is something we've never seen before. You don't have to have a single shot. You don't have to load the gun. Every time you fire, you've got something that you can load several rounds in. On November 30th, 1846, Captain Samuel Walker writes Samuel Colt a letter that will change the course of history. That letter reports how the Colt pistol changed the way he and his rangers fight. With a $25,000 U.S. government contract for a thousand pistols that Walker arranged, and with the design modifications that Walker suggested, a larger gun with six shots rather than five, Sam Colt re-entered the gun manufacturing business in 1847. The revolver went through the process of user influence, in influencing both design and also the practical use of the thing. They tinkered with this invention. Colt develops a 44 caliber, four pound, nine ounce revolver named the Walker after the man who made it happen. Increase the black powder by 60 grains. The barrel to nine inches. The Colt Walker is a much heavier gun, heavier caliber than Colt's original invention. But these Texas Rangers could handle that type of firearm. Many consider the Walker the mightiest handgun of its day, with firepower that won't be matched for 90 years until the release of the 357 Magnum. Colt's business soars, and the name Colt becomes synonymous with revolvers. Sam Colt created a brand around himself. And so what he was trying to establish there was that he was the guy, he was the brand. When you saw him, you thought success. But Colt's most revolutionary idea isn't in his new design, it's in how he puts it together. More than half a century before Henry Ford used mass production assembly lines in his automobile factories, Colt employed them to produce his revolvers in his enormous Hartford armory beginning in the 1850s. Using interchangeable parts, Colt's armory could turn out 150 weapons per day by 1856. The mass production allowed Colt to make his weapons more affordable to gun buyers settling in the West. Colt's mass production achievement is only matched by the revolver's quality. Samuel Colt is an absolute perfectionist. Now, one of these guns is not up to Colt's standard. You choose. Wrong. It's this one. See the blemish? I don't allow any imperfections to leave my factory. Americans are also taken with the way in which this pistol of industrialization was itself like a small factory. 
It was a bullet-firing machine as opposed to a single-shot instrument. Once Cole perfected the system for mass-producing complex metal instruments like firearms, that system was readily adapted to make typewriters, sewing machines, and eventually bicycles, motorcycles, automobiles, cameras, you name it. In 1849, as the California Gold Rush begins, Colt develops the legendary 1840 pocket revolver, the single most successful pistol produced in his lifetime, with 325,000 sold by the time of his death. Most historians agree that the most serious mistake Colt makes is firing employee Roland White after he presented him with a patent on a new innovation. Powder and ball in the front, primer in the back. Reloading would be much faster. Up until this time, the shooter poured powder into each of the six-cylinder mouths, then push a bullet over the powder, and then load a percussion cap on the rear of the cylinder, making the reloading process cumbersome, to say the least. Roland White came up with this idea for a board-through cylinder that would allow you to load the firearm from the rear. It's not something Colt had. The fire from one shot will set off every chamber. It's dangerous. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Samuel Colt's story, the revolver's story, here on Our American Stories. And we return to the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. And now the last installment of this story. With almost a complete monopoly on the revolver, Colt isn't ready to take a chance on something new. Here's Mitt Romney. My dad used to say, there's nothing as vulnerable as entrenched success. Sundance of an enterprise feels it has no real competition. It becomes complacent, and ultimately it can get wiped out by a small upstart that comes out with a better product. Fired by Colt, Roland White takes his groundbreaking idea to two men who intend to be Colts 
biggest rivals, Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. They jump at White's patent and gladly pay him a royalty. With this move, one of the most iconic names in gun making is born. Smith & Wesson. Samuel Cole built his business on the back of the Mexican-American War. Now it was just a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the gold rush and Western migration. Then, in the summer of 1856, Colt marries 29-year-old Elizabeth Hart, the daughter of a devoutly Christian and affluent Newport family. Take a seat. But as the 1850s draw to a close, the southern states begin arming themselves. How can I be of service? I'm here representing some gentlemen that are dedicated to a cause. Colt has been supplying arms to the U.S. military for years. But the military is about to be split in two. It's time for Samuel Colt to decide where his loyalties lie. When you're on the outbreak of war, there's a really difficult problem that arises from firearms manufacturers. And that is the balance between loyalty and being a good businessman. In this case, this is a war breaking out in the United States between the North and the South. This isn't America and the other guy. This is their home. In 1860, just one year before the Civil War begins, Colt sells the modern equivalent of more than $3 million worth of guns to the South. A risky move for a Northern businessman. Colt gets labeled a Southern sympathizer, and worse, a traitor. Sam Colt got into a lot of trouble on the eve of the Civil War because he also was believed to be arming the South. But in fact, Colt supplied arms to both sides before the war. After the war began, that stopped. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt doubles the size of his armory and his factory is operating around the clock. But for Sam Colt, the success he craved and achieved would ironically contribute to his death. On January 10th, 1862, Samuel Colt dies of gout complications at the age of 47. By this time, Samuel Colt has made and sold one million guns. His 35-year-old widow Elizabeth is left in control of the company in a personal fortune of $15 million, the equivalent of over $300 million today. Elizabeth keeps the business running, even as the war wages on. After losing four children and a husband within five years, Elizabeth has begun to emerge from a year of mourning. Then, on February 5, 1864, Colt's armory bursts into flames and burns to the ground. Elizabeth stands at her window and watches her husband's vision go up in flames. Many believe Confederate sympathizers started the blaze. However, no one ever discovers the real cause. Elizabeth resolves to rebuild the armory while continuing wartime operations in an unburned wing of the building. Elizabeth Colt would also continue to innovate, eventually producing what would become the most famous Colt gun of them all, 
the Colt 45, also known as the Peacemaker, and what we know now as the gun that won the West. It is still in production to this very day. Here again is Dr. Roger McGrath. While much has been made of the 1873 Colt Peacemaker, and rightfully so, many of the famous gunmen of the Old West quickly replaced their single-action peacemakers with Colt's new double-action revolvers in 1877. Colt offered the new revolver in a 38 caliber, which was called the Lightning, and in a 41 caliber, which was christened the Thunderer. Among the many gunslingers who quickly adopted Colt's new revolver were Billy the Kid and John Wesley Harden. When the Civil War finally ends, America is transformed in countless ways, not least of which is gun ownership. Most of the soldiers come home with a prized possession. The Civil War really marks a turning point for firearms in American history with a revolver and with mass production really taking off. People were able to start buying revolvers. It's really the birth of a huge movement in America with firearms. People are still carrying the revolver because it's a reliable gun today. Colt transformed his products into icons, and his Colt revolvers became fixed in the American imagination as the very symbol of Western independence. The story of the Colt company after Colt family ownership continues to be one of innovation in weaponry. The Gatling gun, Browning rifles and machine guns, and the M16. During the 19th century, Samuel Colt did for pistols what fellow Connecticut native Eli Terry did for clocks. He made guns affordable for the average American. Couple that with the spread of armaments after the Civil War and what you have is an American inheritance passed on from the 19th to the 20th century. Anchored to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans in the 21st century have also inherited the notion that gun ownership is a normal, solidified, and self-evident aspect of American life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story the cult story is. And by the way, we've gotten any number of business stories from the great book by Phil Antritz, Out Where the West Begins. There's a part two, and we're going to be digging into some of those stories too, and that's more of the cultural uh, effect of innovators there. Uh, But Out Where the West Begins, the first one, was about business leaders, and how they impacted the growth of this country. And it's ignored in textbooks. It's ignored in schools. Uh, been a business innovators and how they've changed America. And we've done the, the Coors story, the Cyrus McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. Other stories, by the way, that we've done right here on Our American Stories. Henry Ford's, Harley Davidson's, Steinway, the story of the piano makers in New York, Sam Walton, who changed retail forever, and Fred Smith, who had an idea when he was at Yale and in college that overnight delivery could happen, and he was the founder of FedEx. 
and told us here on this show that everything he learned, he learned when he was in the Marines. These business stories are stem winders. No one knows what's going to happen. And as we learned from the Colt story, changed America as we know it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Samuel Colt's story, the birth of the revolver, its story. More after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And our own Alex Cortez brings us our 29th feature on what happened on these days in history over 200 years ago. Well, they... They know they're going to find the Rocky Mountains, and they've been warned by Jefferson that there probably is only one range. You know, Jefferson sees the Rockies as sort of the other Appalachians on the other end of the country. You're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. This is a, an idea of symmetrical geography that was very common during the Enlightenment, and so uh, Captain Cook and others were looking for a, a southern continent to balance out Eurasia, and... Jefferson believed that the mountains of the West would be essentially a doppelganger for the Appalachians in the East and that there probably would be a cooperating gap, like a Cumberland Gap. A narrow gap through the Appalachians. Through which Lewis and Clark could thread their way to the Pacific. You know, he could not have been more wrong. The Rockies are twice as high as the Appalachians. There is no Cumberland Gap. And they're not one range. They're a whole series of ranges. And so Lewis and Clark are eager to see the Rockies, and they keep seeing them before they actually see them. So they saw the Little Belts and the Little Rockies and others. There are a whole range of small mountain ranges between Fort Benton, Montana, and the Rockies per se. What's interesting about this to me is that Clark did this. Lewis normally makes the big discoveries. Lewis normally is the one who makes sure that he makes the big discoveries. But in this case, it was Clark and he writes it up in his usual sort of okay but not magnificent way, very matter-of-fact way. From this point I beheld the Rocky Mountains for the first time with certainty. Lewis then apparently either went up the same ridge, but not with Clark, or he just takes Clark's journal entry and Lewis then turns it into a wonderful Today we had our first glimpse of the Rocky Mountains in search of which we have spent so many, that kind of thing. Um, judge then of the pleasure I feel, but the formidable barriers that may be between me and the Pacific gave me pause, but as someone who believes that we should always look forward with optimism and confidence in a very typical, heroic Lewis entry. I have always held it a crime to anticipate evils. 
I would believe it a good, comfortable road until I am compelled to believe differently. But what I discovered in writing my own book about this is that it was Clark, not Lewis, and yet every biography from all the recent biographies of Lewis, including Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage, they all credit Lewis with this moment because he was the great writer. You know, history belongs to the writers. While I viewed these mountains, I felt a secret pleasure. And even though Clark technically was the first to glimpse this outlier range, he has been effaced by Lewis's much greater talent with the pen. And so this is a clue to anyone reading the journals of Lewis and Clark that you're going to have more interest in what Lewis has to say generally speaking, than what Clark does. And Lewis is able to synthesize things that are not always his. You know, he's not doing it for selfish reasons necessarily. He's the official commander of the expedition, but that you need to always read every diary keeper for every day if you really want to have a sense of how things fell out. The Rockies in sight, they were now anticipating some great waterfall that the Hadatsa Indians had told them of and that they would need to drag their boats around on land. But unfortunately, this wouldn't be the trial that they would first meet they ran into. What Yogi Berra called the fork in the road, but theirs wasn't metaphorical and they couldn't take it. As every year I take a, a group of people to the fork in the road, so... One of the things we now know about Lewis and Clark is that they were not traveling in terra incognita. Unknown land. They weren't seeing it as a blank slate. They weren't seeing it as if for the first time. They were seeing what native peoples had told them they would see. And so uh, they now have done some different scholars, including cartographers, have shown that Lewis and Clark had at least 15 and maybe as many as 30 maps drawn for them by native peoples at different spots along their journey. And at Fort Mandan, they had all this leisure, and so they had several maps made for them, usually on the ground with little heaps of sand or dirt as mountains and tracing the rivers with sticks and so on. So they get to the mouth of the Marias, what we now call the Marias, and it appears to be two co-equal rivers the Missouri River that they were on, and this new river, the Marias. But Joseph Whitehouse said that they couldn't tell which was which. The officers being at a loss, which fork was the Missouri River. If you had no prior knowledge, you would think, well, which one is the Missouri and which one is the tributary? Because they look the same. They're the same width, they're running the same volume. And they also say in the journals that the geographic lessons they had heard from the native peoples at Fort Mandan didn't prepare them for this. I am astonished at their not mentioning the fork. And so they were really perplexed. And Lewis, in his usual kind of high-strung way, says, we have to get this right. If we get it wrong and go up the wrong branch and then have to turn back after a month or six weeks, it could delay us by another year. Lose us the whole of this season. And as he likes to say at that point, it could defeat the expedition altogether because the, the esprit de corps of the men might plummet. Would probably so dishearten the party. And so he said, we have to get this one right. 
they also had to get this one right because they had been told that the true Missouri ran into the Rockies and on the other side picked up with the Columbia River, which emptied into the Pacific Ocean, completing Jefferson's dream of discovering a continuous trade route for America. And so they canvassed the men and said, what do you think, guys? And everybody, except Clark and Lewis, said the northern branch must be the true Missouri and the southern branch must be a tributary, including experts like Francois Labiche and Pierre Cruzat. Who had been an old Missouri navigator and who, from his integrity, knowledge, and skill as a waterman, had acquired the confidence of every individual of the party that the northern fork was the true genuine Missouri and could be no other assured Lewis and Clark that the northern branch must be the true one. Well, the two captains didn't think so. Captain Lewis and Captain Clark were not yet satisfied with respect to the proper river to descend. And so they decided to take as long as it required to do the recon of this. To this end, an investigation of both streams was the first thing to be done. And so they sent out different parties along each of the rivers to try to figure out how they flowed and whether they narrowed and what kind of sediments were at the bottom, how clear the water was, if they seemed to be pointing to the Rocky Mountains and so on. And after a week, they spent a whole week at this. The utmost circumspection and caution was necessary. They decided independently, Lewis and Clark, that the southern branch must be the true Missouri and the northern branch must be the tributary. The northern branch was, was exactly like the Missouri. Silt-laden, muddy, kind of badlandsy, uh, murky. In short, the air and character of this river is so precisely that of Missouri that the party had already pronounced the northern fork to be the Missouri. The southern branch was more clear and had some pebbles on the bottom and, and it, it seemed a little bit more like a mountain river. Perfectly transparent. Its bottom composed of smooth zones like most rivers issuing from a mountainous country. So Lewis and Clark thought, well, we're getting close to the mountains. And so the Missouri probably is changing its morphology. It's probably beginning to behave like a mountain river because we're nearing its source. Whereas the Marias must be a plains tributary because if it were actually a mountain source, if it were the true Missouri, it too should be clearing up a little at this point. And so this is very intelligent. This is extremely shrewd geography. It is, and counterintuitive with what appears on the surface, if they're right. Those ideas I endeavored to impress on the minds of the party, all of whom except Captain Clark, being still firm in the belief that the Northern Fork was the Missouri, and that which we ought to take. The men said that they would cheerfully go with Lewis and Clark on either one, but they were pretty sure that the captains were wrong. So this is, a, this is one of the critical moments, and there's a place called Decision Point near Fort Benton, and I take a group of cultural tourists every summer there. And when you go up to this place, you are standing precisely, unmistakably, where Captain Lewis and Captain Clark stood to survey the two rivers. and. 
make their fateful decision one way or another. Next episode, we'll see if their decision was right or wrong. And great job as always on that, Alex. And what a series. What a story. And you can learn more about Clay Jenkinson, our Lewis and Clark expert, and his work at ClayJenkinson.com. He's the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical. We proceeded on. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Lewis and Clark's story, the most epic road trip ever, here on Our American Stories. stories and now it's time for our special series life lessons from dr bob dr robert shillman doesn't go by his formal name i didn't want to be called dr shillman it's it sounded to me too pretentious so he goes by just dr bob i have a uh, a sort of comedic streak about me an unusual name to call someone but Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Being Frank. I was uh, a manager of a floor of a dorm at a college in Boston where I got to live for free in an apartment in exchange for work of making sure the kids didn't burn the place down. And there was a security guard at the elevator. His name was John. I won't say his last name. doesn't matter. And uh, we, as you wait for the elevator, as I wait for the elevator, I opened a conversation with him, got to know him a little bit better. Uh, we never went out for drinks or dinner or anything like that, but just uh, elevator conversation. And then one day I said to him, and I realized this guy had more capability than sitting at a desk and checking kids' IDs. And I said, John, you know, I think you could do more with your life than this. And 20 years later, I got a letter in the mail from John on stationery, on a corporate stationery, and he mentioned, he said, you may not remember, but of course I do remember, the comment that you made changed my life. No one ever said a positive thing like that, that I could do better than, than what I was doing. And your comment 
motivated me to go back to school to get a degree in accounting and now I'm running a forensic accounting firm and I just thought that you'd like to know and I want to thank you for that. So it's very important to me when you see people doing exceptional work to say something about that. You can change their day, their week, and in this case their life by just saying a pause, giving them direction or giving them a positive comment. By the way, I also don't hold back on giving negative comments. <laughs> if you get a bad service, you should make that clear. Maybe not to that person, but to that person's manager. Because less, these are lessons. You can help people by giving them inspirational comments, and you can help people by telling them that they did something wrong and why it was wrong and how to, to perform better. Recently, a friend of mine told me a story He's a uh, friend from where, many years back, and unfortunately, he had prostate cancer, and he's been treated, hopefully successfully. But during part of these treatments, he went to the hospital, and he just related this story to me. They put a um, name tag on you at hospitals now to make sure there's no errors, and they barcode and everything. And uh, he didn't check the uh, bracelet they put on him. And he went then to the next station where they were supposed to inject him with various chemicals or do some tests. And they read the name tag and it was incorrect. It was the incorrect name tag and label bracelet, right? Now, he told me when the service people asked him, well, who gave you that? We want to follow up. He says, no, no, be, be nice to them. Well, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. When someone makes an error, and that's a serious error. Someone's life could have been could have been affected in a very negative way. He could have been killed. If, if they didn't check his name tag and gave him the wrong medicine, he could have died. So I believe in, you know, it's nice. It's obviously better if you can give positive reinforcement when things happen, when you see an opportunity. But it's also very important to give people frank and honest assessments and to fire them if necessary. To fire people. Now, my company... Uh, we have a very good retention rate. We have many people have stayed with the company 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and even now 30 years of the company because we're careful in hiring. But nevertheless, we're not perfect. And our rule of the company is if you hire someone that doesn't work out, you should fire them. Now, firing sounds cruel in some ways. Of course, nobody likes to fire someone and nobody likes to be fired. But think of it this way. I tell my managers in the company to think about that person who isn't working out. You are stealing years from their life by keeping them in a position where they're not doing a good job. And they probably know it. Whether or not they don't know, whether or not they know it, you are stealing from them the opportunity of going somewhere else where they may be very, very effective and happy. So I, I see uh, terminating people or hiring people as something that, that is very important, very precious. You're dealing with people's lives. Most people don't think about this, but you're going to spend more time at work than with your spouse, than with your friends. It, of your awake time, you're going to spend probably 80% of it at work. So you better enjoy it. You better like the people you're around because if you don't, you're wasting your life. And thanks for that advice. And Dr. Bob always telling stories and that's why he's here. This is not love line or advice line. 
But stories always drive our lessons from Dr. Bob. And again, Bob is the founder of Cognex, the world's leader in machine vision systems. But that's not why he's here. It's his wisdom. It's his voice. It's, it's his compassion. And if you want to hear more life lessons from Dr. Bob, go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. with our American stories and that was a dog sneezing if you can believe it one more time Jesse and that was BarkPost.com selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015 and we played this delicious sneeze and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life and I have a I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring and I am going to record that just for this guest the next time she joins us and it's jory larson now joins us and she is well she's the key person behind barkpost.com thanks for joining us jory hi thank you for having me you know many people believe dogs are people i do i mean they are members of my family i want to play another short clip for you this time of dog owners treating their now famous dog mishka with over 100 million youtube views like a human. Mishka, I, I love, love you. you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Good girl. I love you. I love you. in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test, and it didn't That's go. Right. And it didn't did. go well. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So. um Bark Post, one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we, we have this idea for um, an at-home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So um, I followed along. There's an internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along at home. Um, and I, I took an afternoon and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps can do it in less than an hour um, and I was really curious to see what Winnie's IQ would be like any dog owner um, you know you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times and of course they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when yeah. they're uh, behaving like less than an Einstein but um, the test actually it was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted I, I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform. And your your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two year old Australian Shepherd, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a breed that's pretty, pretty known for their intelligence. Um, 
right up there with border collies. At least that's what Australian Shepherd owners always kind of, uh, maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as border collies. Um, but yeah, so she's, she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought was kind of uh, a signi- you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform. Well, I can tell you this. I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Jory, because these dogs, they're just not bright. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, your – you said at one point you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory. Yeah, yeah. So we actually um, – I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door, and we started when – we got her when she was 10 weeks old, so we started right away. Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks. So she was, she was less than three months old. She would nudge the bells with her nose, and then we would know to let her out. Right. So we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's, it's darn smart. And again, I, I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog, because ours are, are so silly. They, they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they, they get confused about, like, pooping. So tell us about the test you did with, well, a, that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test. Yes. So, so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch, and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now? Um, so she did wiggle off, and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds. So that earned her three points on on the scale. And if it took them... You know, 31 seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, <laughs> right. they get zero points. They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know they're a zero. Jory, I don't, I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about talk about some other things that you're you're you're, you're testing in, in this in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence? So we also there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high value treat, so whether it's salami or string cheese or whatever your dog you know really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath. Um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start the stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she was actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese through the towel. <laughs> it's like right. she, she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was a, that was a minor setback. Yeah, I'm not sure how my, my producers would do on that one, though, either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. 
Any other any other tests, Jory? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, the third the third step in this test, you um, it's a, it's involves a treat again. So you're going to cut up another piece of your high value treat, and you make a little wooden plank, you know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported. We did books on either end. And we place the treat underneath the wooden plank far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with her, her muzzle alone. She has to use a paw. That's, this is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their, their snout? And so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again. And uh, you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out, you know, get off the towel and get to the treat. Um, and so with Winnie again, she, she pawed at the towel. She was able to pull it from underneath the plank. She understood that she had to use her paws, but she could not, she, she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew. This time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel and actually she put a hole in my brand new towel, which I should never have used for this test. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory. Right. And I will say, I think, you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all all of these tricks and I think she was kind of suspicious. So if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform. Right. The heck with them. What are they, what are they doing to me? And this is uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I'd love, Joey? Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives. And I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Joey? Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs and, and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Post. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog here anymore. You take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. It's, I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, yeah, and it does feel like maybe, maybe there is something that there that the families are getting a little bit smaller, people are living further away from their family members, so it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door, and, you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and, and it makes you feel like home whenever, well, whenever you're with your dog. I think so. that's what's going on, too, and I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me, and so... I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Joey. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Joey Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining sounds, us. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials and playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love. And we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages.
is Our American Stories. You're listening to the great George Strait, who has tried to retire, but can't. He's still out there touring and playing, and I say he'll do it forever. And we love bringing you voices from all over America to tell stories of the things that, well, ordinary Americans do, build, and accomplish. One of the last original Texas dance halls, The Broken Spoke, has endured for over 50 years. Opened in 1964, The Spoke in Austin is a real success story. With us now is the owner, James White. James, your roots in Texas run deep. Who is Andrew Patton, and why did he settle down in Austin? Oh, uh, James Andrew Patton, uh, he was my great-grandfather, and that's where I got the name James. And uh, his his father, my great-great, uh, he came... Uh, from Texas, uh, he's born in Tennessee. Then he went to Alabama. Then he went to Mississippi. Then he heard about uh, the Texas Revolution, and so uh, him and another group they was marching from South Carolina, and they kind of came through Mississippi. And they had a little song about you know marching for Texas independence, and they uh, just sang along and, and walked most of the way. I mean, they had to take a boat every now and then, you know. To, Cross over some of those rivers. I, I don't know how they got to Louisiana, a bunch of swamp lands down there, but but they got they got here and then, and they did uh, come. And uh, my great great, and his name was uh, James Madison Patton, and he fought for Texas independence, and he settled in Central Texas. Uh, he was uh, married uh, right here in uh, Travis County, about smack dab in the middle of Texas, and. Uh, he was married, I think, in 1846, and he was in the last Indian fight here in uh, Central Texas. And then his brother got shot by an Indian, and that's when his mother said, well, I'm tired of this frontier life. Uh, we're going to move back to civilization, which was only 40 miles, coming back to which is now present-day Austin. At the time, it was called uh, Oakmanville, which was changed to Oak Hill, Texas. James Andrew, he opened up a general store there. You know, he's the postmaster of Oak Hill, and now I own that building. It's a historical building. Uh, my wife and I, we're proud of our Texas ancestors and what they did. And uh, my uncle used to always say, well, you know, they made it safe for us to sleep on the porch, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he went ahead and helped civilize and pioneer uh, that country because it was rough back in them days. And then uh, eventually I came along in uh, 1939, and they named me after my great-grandfather, James Andrew Patton. Tell me about your mom and your dad. Well, my mother's maiden name was Lena. My dad's you know, first name was Bruce White. She loved to dance. Her brothers had kind of a lumber yard there in Oak Hill. And back in them days, uh, if you didn't have a dance hall, if you didn't have a place to dance, they would uh, end up having house dances. And my father, uh, he went there, and uh, they have, like, uh, box lunches, and uh, who would ever bid on, like, your woman's uh, favorite pie that she cooked or the lunch that she made, they would eat, you know, the pie together and, and eat the lunch together. Then they have a house dance, and a house dance is when uh, you always have a fiddle player for sure, and then you try to get you a guitar picker, and if you're lucky, you know, somebody had, a like, a snare drum set up. Anyway, they would kind of roll up the rugs and move all the furniture out on the in the yard, and they would just uh, dance from room to room in the house, and that's what the house dance is. And that's where my mother and dad, they started going together. 
and uh, they would dance together. And uh, so that's uh, they ended up uh, falling in love, and uh, they got married uh, right here in Texas. You know, they were true Texas to the core. They liked to have fun. My dad, he ended up being um, a deputy constable, and he was uh, more like the, uh, one of the bouncers up there in Oak Hill, and they all knew him and everything, but he, he would tell some interesting stories. How it seemed like on Saturday night, everybody wanted to get drunk and maybe get in a fight, you know, but it's just kind of part of it, you know. But thank goodness they're a lot calmer now. They don't want to <laughs> fight like they did way back there in the 30s. Yeah, 40s. lucky for you. <laughs> you joined the Army, James come out in 64, and you're 25 years old, you have no money, and you have an idea. Uh, talk about this dance hall you started. I love country music all my life, and I got to hear country music 30 minutes in the morning around 6 a.m. It would come on over in Okinawa, and I was um, in the United States Army. I was in artillery and uh, Nike Hercules uh, missiles. And uh, But anyway, I got thinking, what am I going to do when I get out of the Army? And so when I got back, I was lucky enough to get stationed in uh, San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston, the old fort, the old quadrangle down there. I thought, well, you know, I might just, uh, it'd be neat to have a place of my own and open up a, a country dance hall. And so I never didn't know that much about how to run it. But I thought, well, you know, I'll just think up a name first and... I got thinking about something original, something Texas, something Western. I started thinking all these names, horse names and cattle names and wagons and wheels. And all of a sudden, I, I kind of zeroed in on a, on a wagon wheel. And then I remember this old uh, movie called Broken Arrow back in the 50s with Jimmy Stewart. And kind of a light bulb went off in my head. I said, you know. I'll just buy me a couple wagon wheels, and I'll lock a spoke out each one, and I'll put one on each side of the door coming in, and I'll name it the broken spoke. It stuck, James. Tell us about the first day you opened. Beer was 25 cents a bottle. Oh, the good old <laughs> days. You gave away a lot of food, free barbecue, cheap beer, and some pretty girls. Sounds like a formula. <laughs> well, you know, we're very fortunate to always have pretty girls come out to dance with us. And there's nothing better than to be in Texas and do the Texas two-step with a pretty girl right in front of you as you kind of dance around the floor doing the Texas two-step. But at the time, I didn't have enough money to finish the place. I had five bunch of cheap chairs that didn't last no time. I remember my aunt lent me a little money to buy the paint, to spray paint them because they didn't look exactly the way I wanted it to. And I bought a lot of, uh, I went out on a limb and got credit. I had good credit, strong back, and uh, and the willingness. I, I never did think I wouldn't make it. You know what I mean? I never, a lot of people, they think, man, I'm going to figure this out. I want to do all this stuff. But, but they never quite take the plunge or the jump. Or I just, uh, I never feared that happening. I went ahead and got about five cases of beer. That's all the heck I could afford. And uh, then I went ahead and started selling it for 25 cents a bottle. And uh, what we did for the grand opening, which is about two days later, we went ahead. I, I sold it five cases of beer, and uh, I bought 10 cases. And I hardly, I just didn't look back no further. I just kept going forward. And I thought, well, you know, they always give a free barbecue when you open up a, a place of business. We've always been kind of family-oriented where people 
always brought their wives in and their children in. That's kind of a Texas thing. But anyway, I thought, well, you know, I'll give away a free barbecue. I didn't realize I was going to give away 300 free barbecue plates, you know, but that's what we did. I really didn't advertise at first. It was kind of like word of mouth. At the time, it was a sleepy little city, and everybody knew everybody. I knew everybody that came in the place. I knew their families. I knew uh, where they worked at. with on a first-name basis. Or I, Back in time, I was 25 years old, and there was people coming in there, 50, 60, 70 years old, and they'd look at me, and they'd say, well, hell, you don't know what the hell you're doing. It says, you won't last six months at this place. And I just kind of said, well, okay. I just kept out on working. I working uh, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Never got a day off, and my wife would chip in and help me when she got off her day job, and I'm very blessed that my wife, Annetta, she loves to work, and she's still working by my side. And it's whatever success that we've had, I mean, she's, uh, she's right there with me, you know. James and his wife, side by side, shepherding one of the last original Texas dance halls, opened it up in 1964, and we're going to continue our conversation with the owner of The Broken Spoke in Austin, Texas. James White, after these messages. stories and we continue with our conversation with James White and he's the owner of the legendary Austin Texas dance hall the broken spoke and he opened it in 1964 with some well some cans of spray paint uh, some beer and that's uh, some six packs a couple of keggers and uh, some barbecue and some free barbecue with that and that's the American spirit folks comes back from from the army and just says hey let's start a dance hall and it's been one of the longest continuing and operational dance halls in the country, certainly in the state of Texas. James, let's talk about the musical acts over the years you've had there. Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, Johnny Cash. Heck, George Strait played one night a week for seven years. Talk about how all of this started. Talk about your first big-name star, a guy named Bob Wills. Well, you know, it's just uh, one of those things that happened. When I first started booking the band, I paid this one band $32 a night. And then I paid another band uh, that played on Friday. That, that was my Sunday band. Friday night, I had Travis and the Western. That was that cost me 25 bucks. $35 was Bill Darcy and the Melody Drifters on Saturday. Then I used to kind of pass around a tip jar if we took in, you know, maybe 20 bucks, maybe. That way, the Saturday night band only cost me 15 bucks. So finally, we started you know, charging 50 cents at the door to get in on a dance night in the dance floor. And uh, then we finally got up to a dollar, then two bucks. But then all of a sudden, I graduated to the band. They were charging um, $60. 
And then they came up, and they was getting like 100 on a Saturday. And so we'd go up a little bit on a cover charge as it went along. And you're getting a lot better quality bands for that time. And then all of a sudden, somebody said, well, um, I think this is Billy Western in Milano, Texas. He said, you want to book Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys? And Bob Wills it was a household word when I grew up. Everybody knew who Bob Wills was. Everybody, aha, take it away, boy, take it away, you know, and, and he would start to fiddling. And he didn't sing that much. He had Tommy Duncan did most of the singing, kind of helped make him famous. But everybody always knew Bob Wills all across the country, especially the ones that were loving country music. And now they call it Western Swing because of the fiddles and the horns. But at the time, it all fell underneath uh, the country music umbrella. And so did Rockabilly, and so did, uh, you know, Bluegrass. It was the proudest moment I ever had, because I'm up there bartending, and, of course, the people at the bar, they think, you don't know what you're doing. I said, well, you know, I got Bob Wills tonight, and I was really proud of it. And uh, they said, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, Bob Wills, he won't show up. He'll be drunk. He'll be out chasing women. You know, hell, he's probably sick in the hospital somewhere. And about that time, you know, the door opened up, our front door, and Bob Wills came in all by himself, had his cigar in his mouth, had a fiddle on his arm, and a cowboy hat on. And so I, they, all the drugs at the bar, they kind of started punching each other as whispering, said, man, that, that's, that's Bob Wills. And so uh, anyway, I got the best of the drugs at the bar on that one because I got to go over there and shake Bob Wills' hand and get a photo taken. And um, back in them days, they didn't take pictures like they do today. But luckily, I got a picture, you know, several pictures with Bob Wills there. And that was my proud moment was to walk my first uh, big country music star on our bandstand. That was 1966. And I had Bob in 66. I had him in 67. I had him in 68. And then he started getting sick. And then... uh, he passed away in uh, 1975, and the uh, Texas Playboys had agreed never to play a gig unless uh, Bob Wills, uh, while he was still alive, they didn't want to play a gig and mention his name in their intro. So anyway, and when he passed away in 75, uh, I booked uh, the original Texas Playboys. Those guys didn't have but regular jobs. I mean, working at a service station or you know, driving a tractor for the county or, you know, and they didn't have enough money to get here. And so offset limits, um, at the time, they wasn't famous at all. They said, well, if you'll help us get Bob Wills, you know, uh, you know, we'll uh, plug your gig the next night. And so uh, what it was, uh, $2,500 we made for the band because we sold 500 seats at five bucks a, a ticket. And people were sitting in the floor in awe of uh, of all the Texas Playboys, and uh, they that made them become famous again. And uh, so that was my kind of helping hand to the Austin City Limits and to myself and to the Texas Playboys. Tell us about the the night Garth Brooks came into your place and played for free. And something tells me you you couldn't afford his list price because I hear it's going for about a million a night. <laughs> you know. I guess I just flat lucked out on the Garth Brooks thing because I, I love so many of his songs. You know, it was so big, and but I really realized that night 
a nice person he is to talk to in person. But, you know, that, that kind of, it went on for about two weeks. Uh, his, his people worked for him. They would call. They would talk to my daughter. They'd talk to myself. And we went back and forth, my daughter Jenny. And, uh, and I told her, I said, well, you know, when they call back, we don't want this to slip away. We're going to get this. Uh, you know, we'll work with them. And as it is, they were just tickling their to play there. Because Garth Brooks, he wanted to play at the Broken Spoke. He had never played there. He knew George Strait had played there. He knew we was a honky-tonk, authentic dance hall. And then plus, he was in town, and he was going to do a show on Town Lake for a lot of people the next night. And so, but he still, we got all the magic. We got all the all the, the press. We got all the Associated Press stuff. And plus, we made another real good friend in uh, all the people that work for Crossbooks, and he invited 40 people from Amazon to come in, and he invited 40 people that work for him to come out. And uh, the people at Amazon, I guess they were so big, they even had bodyguards, so you know, I don't know, I guess all the higher-uppers. And But anyway, it was just something that was supposed to be kept a secret, and so I didn't tell anybody. I think some people from Amazon might have told some people. I'm sure somebody that worked for me said something about it, probably. But anyway, it all worked out fine. It I just didn't want to have like 10,000 people out there and him not to be able to get, get in. In, the, yeah. in the place, to get in himself. And as it was, it worked out perfect because they told me he was behind the spoke in his, um, in his vehicle. And so uh, I went back there, and in about two or three minutes, he came over, and we shook hands and got talking to him. And uh, he was very polite, very nice, very appreciative. And uh, I told him I'd like to introduce him, and he said, I said, anything you want me to say? And he said, well, just say whatever you want to. He said, I said, well, uh, let me know when you want to go up there. And he said, well, I'll sit out here and talk to you another 30 minutes. It's fine with me, you know. And uh, anyway, he said, I'm just here to have a good time. And I think he did kind of put on his uh, Internet that, well, I'm in town. It's Friday night. I just really can't stay home in Austin, Texas on a Friday night with, in the Music City Capital of the World. And so then he had a little picture of a wagon wheel with a spoke knocked out. So that was kind of a clue to all his followers. He's such a tease. And so as it is, we had over 700 people out there. And after I introduced him, it was so magic that uh, I've got a low ceiling to spoke, and uh, very low. And uh, so then his first song was, um, I Got Friends in Low Places. And so it worked out perfect. And then he just did him his guitar. He just sang for 45 minutes, maybe an hour straight. And everybody loved it. And he played that guitar. And I couldn't get off the stage because there were so many people, but nobody really disrespected him, and uh, they didn't jump up on the stage or anything like that. And at the end of it, he turned around with a guitar, and he handed it to me and said, uh, this is for you, and I was just kind of flabbergasted. He kind of lost the words because I didn't really expect that. I mean, I've had all these people over the 54 years, you know, give me things, but... I've never had anybody say, here's my guitar, like on the stage. So that's very special. 
And what's so very special is James White's vision back in 1964. The broken spoke started, and imagine, he couldn't have imagined actually, that a star as big as Titanic as Garth Brooks on a night, a down night while touring, would jump in and get in his car and go and play the spoke and then hand him that guitar that's proudly displayed in his club. James White's story, it's Austin's story in a way. I mean, in 1960, that town had 185,000 people. In 2020, it's getting close to a million. And he grew that club with the town. And again, I can't think of many places in Austin, particularly music venues, that have been open that long. James White's story, here on Our American Stories, the story of American music and American entrepreneurship meeting at the intersection called The Broken Spoke. 